Hey, welcome to High Resolution. My name is Bobby Koshal. And I'm Jared Arandu. We're going to sit down with 25 masters of the design industry, and we're going to learn from them every single week. We're going to learn how the best companies in the world approach, communicate, and deploy design in their businesses every day. In this episode, we're sitting down with Didier Hillhorst. Didier is a director of design at Uber. He'll focus on having a transparent team, defining design principles for that team, and using narratives to get buy-in from stakeholders. We'll get to this episode right after this quick message from our partners, so stick around. For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster, and it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Didier, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Cool. All right. So first question, uh, what's one thing about design that's clear to you that you don't think is clear to others? So I spend quite a bit of time thinking about this. And uh, to me, design is about teamwork. I don't always think that that's obvious to everyone. Uh, As a designer, you start out your career usually honing your craft. Um, But I think you know, no design can be done alone. You're always in a team. And if I look back at my own career, uh, there is uh, no product, no design I could have produced or uh, shipped without help of others, be it designers or others around you. So it's something that I want to instill in uh, other designers. And when I look at portfolios or interview someone, it's trying to get to uh, the core of that, like how do they work with others? Um, uh, how do they get to a result? Because I don't think any great uh, product uh, exists in isolation. Do you, do you believe that designers can actually own an idea? Or do you think that it belongs to more than one person? It's a, it's a good question. I think to some degree, uh, ideas are cheap. Right. Yeah. I didn't invent that quote uh, yeah. uh, in, my, in my days at IDEO. Uh, that was something that was repeated over and over again. So you get a lot of ideas out. Um, I think there is a part ownership, uh, but uh, I think it's more about taking something good uh, and making it better. So continuously building, iterating. And that's where you get, over time, a sense of ownership that you've contribute, contributed to a great design. Uh, and sometimes uh, uh, those contributions are obvious and, 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 and you feel good about them. Sometimes they're the smallest detail, but uh, to me, that's the definition of ownership in, in design. Cool. Um, you are probably the only designer I know who has a graduate's degree in economics. Uh, that is uh, probably true. Uh, <laughs> Were you a banker? Is that what we're saying here? (laughs) Actually, I was. I used to reshuffle portfolios back in 1999. (laughs) That's awesome. No joke. Um, That lasted for about three months, however. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a path I'd chosen when I was 17, uh, 18, um, since I failed uh, uh, pilot school. I'm actually happy I didn't become a pilot. I'd be a terrible pilot as well. Um, but yeah, that's correct. Um, are there any like core principles that you learned in that period of time that has somehow helped shape the way you approach design, or specifically how design actually plays a role in a business? I think that 
any background, whether that's economics or other, uh, and even beyond education, shapes who you are as a designer. Uh, I think there are certainly things that uh, influence me as a designer with my background. Um, but it's been interesting to think of it in terms of more macroeconomic um, uh, theories, uh, like demand and supply. Uh, uh, I think what's interesting about that is, uh, you know, if you put good design forward, uh, people are going to uh, want that. And uh, I think over the last decade, you've seen that, where that's Apple in the hardware space, or uh, even with software, the quality of the experiences we, we enjoy today. Uh, to me, there, there, is, there is some connection to that. And obviously, uh, uh, you know, back, I think, in my days uh, uh, in, in college, someone said, if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. So oh, interesting. <laughs> there's a business reality to all of <laughs> yeah. those things. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't know who the quote is attributed to, but um, it always stuck with me. Um, and then more recently, I've come to think of price uh, itself, a number, as uh, actually a product experience. Because price makes you feel a certain way. Mm. Low price may, may make you feel good mm. because you're getting a bargain. May make you feel bad because you're trying to sell your house. Uh, and obviously, being at Uber, uh, price and how we deal with price and the experience of pricing, uh, uh, I've come to think of that as user experience, not just a number. It's actually much deeper than that and how you communicate and design around that as Effort. well. Um, we, as an industry, talk about minimum viable product a lot. Is there such a thing as an economically viable design? I believe a design should never hurt uh, a revenue stream, for example, right. because that's just bad design. Uh, so I think they're linked. They're, they're, they're linked in the sense that uh, if you can't complete a certain task, yeah. that's going to hurt the business. Uh, and I think it's that realization that makes design so important. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and to me, that's the, the things I look for. Is this design supporting uh, the best case for the business? Uh, uh, and at, at a bare minimum, is it not you know, introducing uh, uh, friction or uh, something that you can't complete? Because yeah. at the end of the day, people are buying something. Uh, they're not just spending money uh, uh, randomly. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to be able to deliver that in the best way possible. And that's where design comes in. So we, we talk a lot about effective communication and design. So first question is, do you think our industry does a good job communicating what we do to, to people that aren't designers. Um, and the second part to that question is, how do you communicate uh, design to non-designers or the other people around you? To answer the first part, I think it varies. Yeah. Uh, I think we've seen great improvements in how we communicate the value of design uh, in the last decade or so. Um, I think there's been many uh, uh, companies and people who've done a great job at uh, not only telling the stories but actually delivering great experiences. Um, you know, you can go through the usual suspects. Uh, I mean, Apple, but also uh, companies like Facebook and 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 Google has really stepped up their their design game as well. Um, so I think we're getting better and better at uh, uh, establishing design as a uh, as as a requirement, uh, and communication is a big part of that. Um, and you know, one of the things I, I, I learned back in college, 
in economics or at a bank or things like that is uh, selling. And their design always has a part selling because what we create isn't real until it is real. So therefore you need to convince others that this is the best, that this is the way forward. So it's internal selling, so, so it's, it's with the stakeholders and getting them to essentially believe in the thing that I you're... think it starts there because yeah. um, you have to make it real. It has to become a reality. Mm. And once it becomes a reality, you can talk about it, you can communicate it outwardly. Yeah. But it starts internally. Uh, because otherwise it has no, no uh, uh, rooting in, in, in reality in something that you can achieve or talk about. Um, so, what, so what do you focus on? You're, you're selling design internally and you're talking to people that might not understand what it is designers do, right? What is, like, what, are, you, are you walking in with something they can look at and touch or are you walking in and kind of vocalizing an idea, getting them in front of a whiteboard to draw some stuff? Like, how, do you, how do you engage them? What does that selling process look like? Um, I think I've been lucky to work at a lot of companies that um, got the value of design. Yeah. So I, don't, I need to do less selling of the function per se. Per se. However, uh, you always need to communicate. We can't keep it in this like magic box and, and keep it there and one day say, this is it, we're going for it. So yeah. uh, I think there's communicating uh, excitement about something and that might be higher fidelity. Mm. But there's also communicating how things work, um, what it takes to get there. Uh, and those are all different things. So it's, the communication is really a spectrum. Uh, I mean, as designers, we want the, you know, the amazing animations, the uh, amazing graphics, something that looks, uh, uh, you know, appealing, uh, and that's good. That helps. But you know, when you're talking to uh, front-end engineers or back-end engineers, you want uh, to make sure that you communicate. Well, where is this call coming from? At which point does this transition? Um, so you're tailoring it to the audience. Absolutely. And you're yeah, selling I, a different thing every time, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you have to be uh, able to, to walk those uh, uh, lines between, because if you, you, know, if you put a, an amazingly detailed design, yeah. uh, you're going to get amazingly detailed feedback. Yeah. Yes. And that's not always what you want. So tailoring the, uh, the message to the audience is something that, I mean, most folks would agree is, is a good thing. And we have to do it because if we, if you do it at, and, and I've made mistakes myself, uh, and, and afterwards you tell yourself, yeah, well, that's what so I you, would have done too. So you kind of learn from the process. Yeah. Uh, so there, there are probably, I mean, thousands of people watching this right now that um, A, probably don't understand that selling is a, is a big component of the function of design. And these are designers, right? Um, and we really want them to try to think about walking into their next meeting and not just presenting where you're presenting like an Excel spreadsheet, right? Mm -hmm. Now you wanna really pitch. You wanna get people excited about this thing. What are some steps they can take um, to A, think about the audience to make sure that they're tailoring the message? Um, what is the medium of presentation that they should be thinking about? Um, and then are there things that they should be saying? Should they be focusing on the process? Should they be talking kind of long-term uh, here's what we're going to do in the next six months, or hey, here's how we start next week, and you're going to be a part of it. Like, what are the things that they should be thinking about there? One of the things I've come to realize is that as designers, essentially, we're storytellers. Yeah. You, whenever you enter a meeting, you're telling a story. 
Sometimes it's a really short story. Sometimes it's a longer story. Uh, but a story builds up, has different uh, ways of uh, going uh, through its narrative. And I think that's where uh, the key is. You start out with thinking about it as a story. So as an introduction, as a plot. And now I'm getting a little you know, detailed about it. And don't go write a novel or something. <laughs> but um, I think you have to take people along the journey. Um, and uh, and even though that sounds kind of you know silly, uh, uh, it's rooted in reality uh, because most folks that look at a design are fresh to it. They don't. They don't. Sometimes they don't even have context. So, uh, and it, even if it's a small thing, uh, so I think the minute you think of it as a story, you start to be more mindful about how you're going to tell that story because you can't just go in because it's you know. The, the alternative is throw up a few screens and you're rambling on one screen for 10 minutes and then suddenly you're like, oh wait, I need to move on to the next <laughs> thing. And then, uh, you know, we've, all, we've probably all been in those design reviews that, that turn into uh, a bit of a, a chaos and, yeah. uh, and then everyone is chiming in and uh, you cover 2% of what you actually want to cover. Um, so I think that's important. Now, I think everyone does it a little differently and I, I don't have a set process how you communicate so, some you know, uh, there's different uh, times you use different techniques, but uh, clarity is important and hitting some 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 points that you you, you want to hit, and uh, also leaving a design review with uh, uh, some amount of of you know assurance, like okay, this is what we're going to do next, or this is how we uh, going going to evolve this, or worst case scenario. Uh, the story was terrible, and uh, you just start over. Yeah, and that happens right. too, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it starts with that. And I myself, I'm still trying to become a better storyteller. It's hard. Are it's there hard. anything? Yeah. Like, are you doing anything to become a better storyteller? What are you focusing on for yourself? I read a lot of fiction. Nice. <laughs> now, I mean, uh, it's amazing the, the worlds you can create out of just yeah. letters and words that arrange themselves. Um, and uh, I remember during my time at Flipboard, we had um, uh, really you know, professional folks that had decades of experience in the magazine industry and how they think about creating an article, for instance, mm -hmm. and uh, the story arcs and lines. And that sort of opened my eyes to being able uh, to tell good stories. Um, but yeah, that's something that I'm still working on because writing scares the bejesus out of me. <laughs> For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster. And it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Of course, we're inspired by our design program, which is over 60 years old. But today, IBM employs more than 1,300 professional designers, and we've certified more than 60,000 IBMers in the practices of IBM design thinking. The result? Diverse teams working more closely than ever with our clients, their users, and our partners to create modern solutions that provide differentiated, human-centered outcomes to the world. We'd love to share this story more closely with you. And I hope to see you soon at one of our IBM studios worldwide. We'd also like to thank our friends at Envision for their support. 
Envision is the world's leading product design platform, powering the future of digital design through their deep understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world, like Facebook, Capital One, Airbnb, and Netflix. Let me tell you three reasons why I'd use it. One, poor communication is one of the biggest blockers for talented teams. Two, when you don't get feedback from others early and often, you can get lost in the woods, and that's just bad for everyone. And three, without a prototype, it can be hard to show others your full vision for a design. Envision solves all of that. You can rapidly prototype at the front end of the design process and collaborate across every stage of the project. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone, from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit EnvisionApp.com and use our access code INV-HIGHRESOLUTION for three months free. So you've now been at Uber for over a year, and since then, there's a lot of great projects that have shipped. But what we're really curious about is what your first three months looked like, um, and especially what you prioritized coming into a pre-existing design team. Um, so, you know, taking over uh, a design team is never an easy thing. So the first things you do is not necessarily diving into the pixels. Um, I took the time to uh, assess both the team composition, uh, also uh, reached out to uh, product managers and engineering to see, uh, even though the project has just started, what are some of the things that were working, weren't working. Uh, so a bit of a 360 view of it. Once that was done, you really want to dive in. And uh, the main challenge at Uber versus a really small startup is that uh, you're really proposing changes that affect hundreds, if not close to a thousand people that work on this product. Uh, so that told me that as a design team and design organization, we need to have our act together. Because if we don't, that chaos breeds more chaos and uh, that's the last thing you want. Um, the other thing was to really focus the design team uh, and find, and if a high impact project like this, you want a team that really works well together, where uh, there's no concerns about egos or who owns what. Um, and that takes time. Um, coming in as someone new leading the team, uh, you need to build trust uh, uh, with, with the entire team. Uh, so it was really twofold. The, three, uh, the first three months was A, setting up a process for the design team uh, to be successful and to let them uh, run in an organized manner. Two was also uh, making sure all the stakeholders, um, and that is mostly product and engineering, uh, understood what we were trying to do. You know, weekly updates, all of those things. You need to set up uh, a minimum amount of process not too much, because then it feels bureaucratic, which is also not great. Uh, but you need to create space for designers to do what they do best, which is create amazing work. Um, and um, so that was really the th first three months, is, is getting, it's like, you know, starting the engine, making sure it keeps running. Sometimes it stalls, it's okay, should restart it, but keep, keep that engine running. Um, and make sure you're, you know, 
people mentioned it before, but at some point you just become the shit umbrella for everyone. Yeah. Uh, there's no, no uh, more PC way of saying it. That is really uh, a big part of my job, is to ensure that the team can do what they want and get them excited about the problem ahead. Um, so, and then uh, additionally to that is, is also, I talked about product, talked about engineering, but also uh, how do we loop in uh, research, content, make them part of the process to really figure out where, where we're going. Uh, and a lot of uncertainty. You need to be comfortable with uncertainty. Those first months are going to be, you know, uncertain. You're not going to know where it goes. You have, you have an inkling, you take a few bets, but um, it's, it's messy. Design is messy. Mm -hmm. People forget that. It's never clean. The results should be clean, yeah. but how you get there is, I think every designer you'll talk to is going to have a different experience of how they got to where they got uh, in, in a product. You talked about weekly updates. I'm actually very curious, just tactically, like what, what does that weekly update, update look like? Uh, who does it go out to? Is it design focused? And then what do you focus on uh, in that update? So it doesn't go out. It's in person. Ah, nice. I don't like sending docs and things like that. Awesome. They're great for documentation at some point, but every week uh, we would sit together either over, over a video conference call or whatever yeah. with the leads. So engineering, product, design, gotcha. whoever needs to be there. Minimum amount of people preferably. Um, so it was a group of five people maybe, and um, we talked through it. And the first three months is really design talking. Yeah. The engineers are looking at you. They're like, "What you got? Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> what you got? Yeah. What are we doing?" Yeah. Um, and that was great. That cadence was great. But um, mm. uh, but I, I don't like sending out like emails. I mean, they're important. They can be important for an organization, but uh, uh, for design, like you need to do that in person. You need to uh, you know you also need to build trust. Uh, yeah. uh, documents and, and slides don't necessarily build that same amount of trust, I no. believe. Uh, so, Travis is currently the CEO of Uber, obviously, and founder. Yes, um, yes. Talk to us a little bit about your relationship with him and his team, um, and how are they empowering design, specifically digital product design, at Uber? Um, Travis was great to work with. Um, he really uh, gave enough room for the product design team to uh, explore, to come up with a design uh, that speaks to what Uber is about um, and, uh, and the mission we have um, and how it fits within the broader uh, uh, you know, world that Uber wants to create. And he he's really excited about those things, which is refreshing to see. Uh, he's not prescriptive, but he will push. Uh, so, for instance, um, you know, he, he wants the map to come alive inside the Uber product. That's cool. Uh, of course, we're like, oh, does that mean we're gonna build SimCity? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, preferably, yes, but yeah. that's not going to happen. Yeah, right. But it, it tells us that we can push the envelope from a creative perspective, from a design perspective, to start bringing some things alive. That once you open the Uber app and you're trying to get a ride, that you feel like you're in your city yeah. or a city that you're visiting and that it feels alive. Um, and, and that sets the tone for everything. 
It allows you to do uh, things. And uh, so, again, not prescriptive necessarily. It's not a specific solution. It's, it's, uh, it's these nuggets that really get people excited. And I think a CEO can do those things. That's amazing, right? You can walk in, you can say, I want the map to be alive and just walk out. Yeah. And I think designers get excited about that. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and Travis is really good about that. Yeah. And, um, and he's also supportive of those things and will make it happen. Yeah. He calls himself the chief problem solver, which <laughs> I think is kind of cool. And it's like, you know, cool. um, so you see something, says something, and lets people own the solution to it. Yeah. And uh, as designers, we then have a responsibility to hit that, to do that. And that's exciting. That's exciting. So speaking about the trust and empowerment that Travis established in the design team, um, after your first three months or during that period of time, your first project was the recent Uber app redesign? That's right. Uh, okay. So, I mean, first off, that was beautifully executed. Yes. Um, Thank you. Especially considering the scale of, of Uber. And I think something that's really um, interesting to many designers is how does a company at the scale and size of Uber actually ship a product with that level of craftsmanship, especially in the first release? Yeah. Um, so to be fair, I guess it wasn't necessarily the first release mm -hmm. since we've done a couple of releases, but the first release in a while of, of the, what we call the rider experience. Um, but I think it goes back to what I said earlier. You set the stage in those first three months. Uh, you know you have executive support uh, to, to do this. Um, so then it's really up to the design team and design leadership in general uh, to create an environment where you can get to that level of craftsmanship. Um, but more importantly, you know, it's not the designers that ultimately write the code. Yeah. I mean, some try. Uh, I try. It's terrible. But, and, and that's good. And we, we should all prototype. And we did a lot of that. We had a design engineer on the team who was able to quickly test and prototype things in real time with real code uh, using Uber APIs so that we could go out and see how it would you know, uh, resonate with users or how a certain animation would feel. Uh, but it also means working closely with the engineering team uh, because they are the ones who build it and they get as excited as designers get about these types of things. Actually, I would argue that some engineers are great designers. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I've been lucky to work with uh, quite a few throughout my career. And here at Uber too, there are quite a few that are amazing at understanding it and will take it to the next level. Like, you know, they'll, 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 they'll work for a few hours and then they're like, hey, check this out. And I'll look at it and I'm like, man, you made it like 10 times better. This is amazing. Um, and it's that trust where you're just working together back and forth that is, um, that is critical. Um, and it's not always easy because I think many designers would, would, uh, 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 would not disagree that sometimes things get left on the table. Yeah. That animation you really wanted, oh, didn't have time for it, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, but I think it comes back to building excitement and trust because even during uh, uh, the redesign effort and the final stages, I recall that we were reviewing a final animation, a little dot that comes in and then grows and yeah. shows a shortcut on the screen. And um, I really wanted that in there for a gazillion reasons. 
But what was amazing is that uh, it got hot fixed into uh, the app two days before it shipped. Nice. And I did not have to argue for it. A platform engineer wow. did the job for me. And that was an amazing moment because you suddenly have uh, an entire team and organization that supports these types of decisions. Uh, and I think as designers, like building those bridges is important uh, because the next time something doesn't make it into the product, uh, you should ask yourself, well, why was that? Yeah. Was there, you know, did I not follow through entirely? Uh, was it truly a trade-off? Is it going to get into the next release? Like, well, how, how, how do we do those things? Because sometimes, uh, you know, after the first disappointment, we sort of give up. It's like, okay, never made it. Yep. Uh, I always like to ask the question, okay, when's the next release? When's the next release? How long is it going to take? What does it take? Um, and keep pushing that. Uh, and I encourage also at Uber, sit down with your engineers because they'll love it. Trust me, they'll love it. So it sounded like there was a great deal of buy-in from engineering which is really important. And you spoke about the bridges that designers need to form with these different, uh, these different orgs to be able to ship this level of product. But what did that actually look like? Was design sitting next to engineering while they were working on this project? Like, yep. how did they establish that, that rapport? We're sitting very close. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah you have to. Uh, proximity is everything. Sometimes you need to go away and focus, not alone, but as designers as a team, there is times when you need to not be distracted, mm. um, mainly because you're just trying to figure out your story. You don't have a story yet. You don't have anything to show yet, and that's terrible. So there's times when you need to focus, uh, and there's times when you need to be available, where uh, you sit down with engineers. And obviously, that's hard to scale, because the ratio from designers to engineers is might be one to five, might be one to 10, who knows? So. The other thing we did is we started building an internal website where we just started sharing all of the designs, wow. all of the motion prototypes, and that slowly started turning into a bit of a platform-esque uh, resource for folks. But you need to support everything you're trying to achieve because it's not enough to just say, well, I have this great motion study here and this is how... No, people need to know. Engineers need to know. They'll ask you. Uh, what's the what's the timing on this? What's my Bezier curve? If you want to get really technical, right? Like uh, uh, because that 0.1 second might make the difference between something that feels supernatural and something that is terrible. Um, so, you know, we need to as designers need to think beyond just um, uh, uh, delivering the design itself, especially when it matters at scale. Because there's no way you're going to sit down with a thousand engineers uh, every day. I want to I want to get into I want to go back to the hotfix because um, like that to me is a rare thing. It's not that engineers don't care or that designers don't know necessarily how to work with engineers to make them care. I just think it's it's rare to find a level of collaboration around polish um, where to me that that probably speaks a little bit more to the values of of Uber and its product sensibilities, right? So the engineer probably found it inconceivable to launch something that everyone didn't wholeheartedly believe in. Um, what do you think drove that hotfix at the end of the day? Um, yeah. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, a bit of communication yeah. and also uh, education in a sense that I think, um, you know, 
we sometimes only see what we want to see. And I feel the role of design is also to open people's eyes to how mm. amazing it can be. And I think throughout the process, because it happened so late in the process, yeah. um, I think we were able to build that excitement, create that excitement where it became natural to have that and it was foreign to not have it. Mm. So you switch it around. Whereas usually there's a, you live in a world where, no, we don't need that. You, people start to think like, there's something missing. There's something not quite right here. Yeah. Uh, and that's where you wanna get to. But it takes time. It, takes, uh, it, it certainly takes time. I mean, I remember like when the engineer started, um, they, they need to get their machine running too. Yeah. Like for weeks, the app looked like nothing, frankly, because yeah. they, they rewrote the entire app from scratch. Wow. Uh, so literally, the, you know, their first prototype was a box. Sure. It's like, okay, it's got yeah. some work to do. Yeah. But, you know, and, and I think they, they went through that, those phases too, but it's really, you know, where we usually tend to think about something that doesn't need to be there. This yeah. was more, it felt like something was missing. And, yeah. uh, and I feel that that's where uh, uh, design did a good job, it, in yeah. that sense. It sound, I mean, it sounds like the whole weekly update thing that you were talking about, getting the engineering and the product leads in a room, um, created this, the, these schedules of reinforcement to show them, A, what good design looks like, um, and B, while you guys were building out, or they were, the engineers were rewriting the app from scratch, as they were kind of putting layers of skin yep. on the app. Um, it sounds like that engineer specifically probably saw what the design team had envisioned and saw the delta between that and what was gonna ship and there was a moment of pride that came into play that said Engineers, engineering is not going to be the blocker of making this yeah. cool, right? And, and so like, like the, taking that yeah. personal responsibility, it sounds like. I think that also goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that sense of ownership. That's right. And suddenly it becomes a much broader thing than just the designer fighting for what's right. It's like, no, actually everyone is fighting for what's right. That's awesome. Um, That's the dream. That yeah. is the dream. <laughs> Doesn't always successfully work yeah. that way, but as long as you can you know, hit those points, uh, uh, I think it matters. And yeah. um, doing the right thing, it, it does matter. I have a question around tools. You guys built an internal website to share stuff. Why is that? Why why internal? Why not just like a like an envision or something? <laughs> Maybe we like to build things ourselves. I would say that uh, <laughs> I think anyone would recognize it's, it's that as like it's a maker culture. Is there that there are yes, there are like ten tools. No, we'll just make our own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, it started. I frankly, it started with Google Slides. Yeah. And that thing got to 200 slides. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. And <laughs> I remember uh, telling the product lead, I'm like, you know, this is gonna break, right? Like, mm. like this is not scalable at all. Um, uh, but it, it worked for a while, and it was great. Like, if you're trying to establish like big pieces, and and uh, uh, and you're trying to communicate, and and to be honest, Google Slides has great common features or you know you name it where you use that or, or uh, Dropbox paper it doesn't matter right it, there's some some great features there but at some point it was really just it was a way for us to communicate at scale right. uh, and um, and I think it paid dividends because when you redo something as fundamental as uh, our our writer experience mm -hmm. you don't just do it like once and you're done 
you need to be able, let's say someone walks in the door tomorrow at Uber and says, okay, how do I design mm. for the rider experience? Well, you need to start somewhere. You need to understand the decisions we've made, the components you can use. So that website started to form a kernel of, of more of a platform type or design system uh, 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 website. And, uh, and a website is just one way of communicating that. There's many ways, but you know, it seems like that's the easy, most easily accessible and, uh, and most easy to distribute. So it's, it really started out as we need to communicate with more engineers than we can sit down with in person. Yeah. Uh, and that actually turned into uh, more of a way to uh, uh, expose the system that uh, we were working on. Uh, because it's, and, and we did both at the same time, which somehow I always end up in that situation. Um, but it helped because everything you do from a platform perspective is you know, influenced by real by a real product because uh, the danger is always that you create a platform that looks perfect and then you're like well I can't use any of this in the real world so right. um, uh, and, and I, I always you know uh, struggle with that balance but I think uh, it is doable but so many things throughout the process um, uh, sometimes happen by happy accident uh, and uh, you take that and you're like, actually, that's a reasonable way of, of, of being able to do things. Mm. So what are other tools or resources that have been put in place to help build that excitement and transparency outside of design? Um, I think prototyping is key. I mean, uh, more and more we, you see that throughout the industry, yeah. right? And um, I would even say that uh, there is prototyping on, on a level that makes it quick. You, know, you name it, you can use uh, Envision principle and Enframer, uh, but also having folks that know how to balance uh, design engineering, as I talked about earlier, those people that can actually get production code into the application as well, but are designers at heart. Mm. Um, I think that's an, a role that's evolving, uh, but uh, we wouldn't be able to make as progress as quickly as we were if it weren't for uh, a resource like that. Uh, it's just impossible uh, because the, you know as much as Framer allows you or any of the other tools allows you to express it in code. Uh, it's not like you're going to ship JavaScript inside a native application, at least not here. So um, uh, being able to even get closer to the metal, so to speak. Um, is good, but that t that takes expertise. I wouldn't recommend, you know, unless you're really into it, a designer to dive into Swift and be the best Swift engineer ever. Um, uh, but it becomes important to to do that because uh, nothing is static anymore these days. Certainly not an application. It's impossible to to think of it that way. Uh, everything changes. I actually have a question, kind of a personal question for you. Um, it looks like, you know, as we were talking earlier before we started recording this, mm -hmm. it sounded like a lot of your experience, just generally as a designer in life, has been through a series of apprenticeships, right? Um, what, and, and that, I mean, I would assume you probably gave you a lot of mentors in your, in your design career. What are the things that you were taught uh, when you were a younger designer just breaking into the industry? Um, what are some of the things that you were taught that you would impart to other people that are just breaking into the industry? 
Um, so what was interesting, so I started out working for IDEO. Yeah. Uh, and I remember when I started, I always wanted to be right because I was so afraid of failure or of not being right. Um, so that's how I behaved initially. It's like, you know, this is right. I know it's right. Um, and that was a terrible attitude. Actually, I got called out immediately, first three months. Like, uh, yeah, well, you do good work, but you're, uh, you know, you should, you should open up. You should take feedback. You should take critique. I was terrible at taking critique as well. It was like any negative feedback, I would like bite your head off probably. Mm. Um, so I started to be more patient, be more open to it, and, and be okay with making mistakes or not knowing something. Because if you don't know something, well, you start learning more about it. So, and, and I think, you know, that's something that always happens in life. You, you know, you, you, you don't want to fail. You, you want to do a good job. And yeah. sometimes that makes you overprotective. So, um, you know, that's something I try to impart now with designers as well. Like, uh, but you need to create an environment where that's okay. And, and you can do that. Uh, uh, because sometimes it's, it's just hard to to uh, be vulnerable and try a few things, but as designers we need to because otherwise we're not going to get to the, the right results. So that's that's a big one to me that was one of the first things I, I needed to learn because obviously with a background in economics and working at a bank, the bank everyone's right all the time, right? Like you're the best trader ever and amazing and Numbers everyone makes don't lie. Yeah. So well, there's that too. It's it's very true. Uh, so. You know, it's designers need to be comfortable with that mm -hmm. the uncertainty and uh, and as you as you gain more experience, you start to recognize certain patterns. Um, and, but then patterns shift. Uh, I mean, when I started out, there was no iPhone. Yeah, like you know, we were doing like there was terrible touchscreens yeah. and keyboards and things like that. So suddenly, Apple introduced the iPhone. All patterns change. Yeah. So you need to, there's you need to be uh, you need to adapt to your environment because that's also design shifts all the time, you know. So uh, patterns shift, but do principles shift? I think principles probably remain more constant. Yeah. At the end of the day, uh, uh, I do think they can shift, but those shifts are more uh, uh, society level shifts, ah. uh, bigger shifts that you see. Um, I mean, if you think about it. You know, ten years ago, uh, would you pay a stranger to take a ride in mm, a car? Sure. <laughs> no. Mm. <laughs> Hell's no. Uh, but today, that's normal. That changes, you know, how society works and behaves, and what we think is okay versus not okay. And sometimes, in some places, that's not okay. And then, you know, like there, there's those are interesting shifts that you see um, and that change it. And I think design actually has the power to change some of those, but that, you know, uh, uh, that is something that, you know, we don't necessarily control. But I do think that some principles remain fairly constant. You can look at design decades ago and uh, some design, st design still stands. Uh, um, and, but, you know, they do shift over time. But adaptability, I think, and, and maybe related to that is just pure empathy is something that as designers we should all be comfortable with and, uh, and, and explore. So, unless you have any other questions on this part. Yeah, yeah, so 
this next series of questions. We reached out to the community and we asked them what's burning in their minds. So we've got a few questions that we got from them and we're going to ask every guest this. Uh, so we'll kick off with this one. How do you explain the role of design to people in Uber? So luckily, I don't have to do too much explaining. Uh, that said, you still uh, need to communicate and make sure that design, frankly, has a seat at the table. Um, um, and the way I look at it is, you know, you can create any product uh, you would like, but to get it to the next level, to really make it amazing, and uh, to get you know, that level of empathy that's necessary, you should absolutely leverage your design team at all times because that includes not only how it looks, how it works, but also, you know, tons of user research that has been done out there. Uh, for instance, I've been actually driving with Uber, so I've been a driver because I want to understand the, the flip side of this as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but would I know what it's like to drive in Mumbai, India? No, I have no idea. I need research to tell me what that looks like, or I need to go there myself. Yeah. Um, you know, being able to write great content, like all the things that uh, a design team can do, uh, people sometimes forget. So I think it's up to us to make that visible, to again, tell our stories uh, again and again. Like even show the difference between something that was designed well and something that wasn't designed well. Yeah. Um, and I think we can see examples of that in, in our daily lives and outside of that as well, mm -hmm. right? So um, I see it as my job at Uber to tell those stories and to show evidence of those stories. Because um, that evidence is what uh, makes or breaks it. It's like, hey, here's this great project we did and here are the results. And oh, here's the uh, you know the data behind it. Like again, it needs to make sense to to do that. So, uh, just being an advocate for design um, uh, in a company like Uber is important. Always yeah. uh, pushing. So the second question, speaking about the roles that design can take, uh, how is the design organization currently structured at Uber? Um, so obviously we have many things going on at the same time. Uh, one of the things I noticed when I joined Uber is uh, I thought of it as like, okay, you got riders and drivers and that's it. Uh, well, that's not entirely true. It actually, um, it's, um, it's more complicated than that. Uh, you lift, you lift, <laughs> you know, sort of like lifting the engine bay and like, oh, okay, this is complicated. I have no idea how it works. Uh, so from things like how do you price things out? Like how does that even work? How do I, how, you hit a button and some car moves somewhere and comes yeah. pick you up. Sounds super simple, very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and we know that people get pissed off when their, you know, time uh, of when the car arrives jumps up. But, uh, you know, that whole, it's like, it's like an entire orchestra that is in the shadows to, to make this happen. And that's what's so fascinating about logistics. But the other thing that I realized is that we are in like hundreds of cities. And uh, the one thing that I think is unique about Uber as well, and as designers we can leverage that, is all the folks that, and then we call them operations internally, ops for short, are the folks that make things happen in the cities. They understand how their city works, what the market looks like. 
they're sort of the, the eyes and ears on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I can't really think of other companies that have that type of, of knowledge and, and, and things that can assist. And, it, you know, we leverage that. Um, so that's pretty fascinating to be able to, to take that into account and design for, for that. So how does that translate into the teams? Like we, <clears throat> you mentioned the writer, you mentioned the driver, what are? So we have the brand team, mm -hmm. uh, and we have uh, what we call creative services, uh, because a lot at Uber is about communicating uh, and uh, how we communicate from emails to all of those things. And then there's a core product team, and the core product team, uh, the core product design team is really in charge of things that you, you, you might see and are familiar with, whether that's rider, driver, eats, uh, rush, our delivery product, and everything, uh, since everything in Uber is a two-sided marketplace, there is, uh, uh, there's always the two sides of the coin to any product. Uh, then we have, obviously, we're working on autonomous vehicles, so uh, that is really in its infancy. Uh, but you need to think about those things too. There's many different aspects of what makes Uber tick and work and how we make bets for the future uh, that we as a design team, product design team, cover. Mm -hmm. And most of it is probably unknown to most people. Like I would imagine most companies have that, you know, because Apple is not just about the iPhone. No. Although we associate most of it with the iPhone or Facebook isn't just about their newsfeed. Um, uh, it's interesting how many people it takes to build an amazing, amazingly great product. So there are people out there listening to this right now that are the only designer in their company. Maybe there's one or two other people with them, right? Um, how would you get them to show the business, the business that they're in, the value of what they do as designers? So I've been there. Yeah. What's amazing is that your value is absolutely immediate mm. because you are the only designer. Mm. <laughs> right. By de facto, you, you are the value. Yeah. Um, the difference is like, you know, it's, it's usually if you're the only designer uh, at a startup, for instance, even pre-launch, everything is geared towards getting to that momentous 1.0 product. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yes, I remember there were some lonely times because I used to be an IDEO right. and I had tons of designers around me. And I joined a startup, I was the only designer. Right. First of all, I thought that my uh, startup experience would end after three months because it felt like a project, right. but it didn't. It kept going, six yeah. months, nine months, a year, two years. Um, and you start to leverage different things. You learn how to become more independent as a designer, as a design thinker. Uh, you, you learn how to collaborate very well with product and engineering mm -hmm. and probably directly working. I mean, product is the CEO probably. There, mm -hmm. There's probably no product managers. Um, it's not for everyone. Uh, and um, I think it, you know, it takes... Uh, I wouldn't recommend it for someone just out of college. Uh, uh, you know, get some experience. Like you wouldn't recommend being the only designer if you're right yeah. out of college. Yeah, that would be uh, hard. That um, would be super hard. I mean, yeah. I've been surprised before, and there's folks that could yeah. totally do it. But, um, but I think it's a different challenge. You're really, it's much more existential in the sense that you're helping 
a company get to their first product, or even if you've already launched it, you are the single point of failure. Um, and you'll probably have to make quite a few trade-offs uh, and be balance the, you know, the desire for, for amazingness with a, a, a sense of pragmatism. Uh, and the trade-off exists both in large and small companies, but the balance can shift ever so slightly. And right. the decisions you make are different, but uh, you know both, as some have, uh, have written articles about, both have their pluses and minuses. Uh, um, and I've enjoyed working in both. Um, uh, they just represent different challenges. But I think if you are going to be the only designer at a smaller company, yeah. uh, I think making sure that they understand the value is critical. Because if not, it's going to be a pretty frustrating experience. So you, earlier you spoke about narratives and storytelling as a way to help build excitement for a project, especially for a designer. Um, but once that excitement is there and people are bought in, the next logical question is, what are the goals um, and what are the results that we're hoping to, to produce? Right? Um, how should a designer go about defining those goals and presenting them? So I think, at least from my personal experience uh, with with Uber, you partner closely with the product teams. Uh, you know, you you look at the data, you look at different things, everything around the design. Uh, you can't just make random bets because mm -hmm. at a company like Uber, that is, you know, definitely metrics driven. Someone's going to ask about it. They're going to say, okay, show me. You know, you're proposing of changing this design. Uh, and I'll give a quick example. Like in the older Uber experience, all products from Uber Pool to Uber Black to SUV all shown on the same page. Mm. I mean, that doesn't scale, right? But it obviously gets people nervous when we say, no, no, it's okay. We're going to divide it up, and it's going to be in sections, and it's going to be great. Sounds good, cleans up the interface for sure. But the next question you get is like, well, how do people get to SUV? Like, is it discoverable, is it not? So then we started looking at the data and you know, people trade off between Uberpool and UberX mostly. Or they trade off between luxury products. But we also took into account that if you're always riding Uber Black, we're not gonna put you in the economy section with Uberpool and UberX. That's the wrong section for you. So starting to use data to actually create meaningful design. Um, and that's how you build a case. So the goals, the design goal should always be aligned with the business goals. Because uh, if you don't do that, you're going to get questions. And why not, right? Like I would ask the same questions at some point. Um, and, it, and I think the, the, the alignment of those goals is what makes it successful. And you can get past like, you know, like, you know, the, the horrendous feedback of, I don't like this design. And you're like, well, why don't you like the design? And then you, like, 30 minutes later, you're still not really clear about why a design wasn't working or was working. Um, uh, but making sure you build a good case around your design, especially in a larger organization where you'll have to, again, back to the selling, you, you need to do some of that selling. You need to show why it's, it's better. Um, uh, there is something looking better yeah. I mean, as designers, that's what we all go for. But there's also something working better and mm -hmm. just, in general, being better. 
Uh, but better is subjective. Like, what's better? Like, I mean, if we make more money, that's better, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't care how it looks. So uh, you need to combine all of those variables into one. So one, one follow-on to that question. Um, you spoke about the design goals should be in alignment with the business goals, and that makes complete sense. Um, it's the best way to like push through those initial friction that you have with stakeholders. Uh, but what happens in the scenario where the designer does not actually align with the business goals? Mm. Then it's not a good design. Back to the drawing board. Um, I truly believe that. Unless your business goal is also not good, then you have bigger trouble. But. I, I truly believe that. I think a design, I mean, then you might as well become an artist, right? Like, uh, uh, that's where, you know, you're, you're really exploring uh, uh, yourself and, and, and doing things. But I think I would, I would really build a case then, why are you going against a business goal? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that, that could be an interesting conversation, but you're going to have a hard time convincing folks because... Uh, you know, that's also something I learned during my days at IDEO and after that is like, whenever you go out and you talk to a client, like never, never just think that they're, they make decisions because they're stupid. They're not. They know their business best. So that's the other thing that when working with Travis that I wanted to really understand. He knows this business like no other. It's amazing. It's understanding that and being able to distill it is another uh, responsibility we have as designers. So if you're going against that business goal, a big business goal, right, because if it's a smaller one, you can make trade-offs. Mm -hmm. You say like, well, I'm willing to forego 2% here to gain 5% there. Yeah. Now that's interesting. And we had some of that at Uber as well, where you know, I'm, I'm sure some folks are still frustrated about their pickup location and where's my driver and I'm right here, the map says I'm sure. right there. So. We, you know, we decided to trade off certain things uh, like speed and making sure your GPS is more accurate uh, to get that down the funnel. Now the problem is, if we do get it wrong, yeah. it does piss people off more. Yeah. Um, um, so, but that's a trade off you make. So, um, so I think it's either either you're aligned or you better have a damn good story why you're proposing to change it. But you can't, as designers, we can't come to the table alone with that. I mean, you're gonna get laughed at. Like, I mean, I don't spend my days doing SQL queries, understanding the data. There's experts for that. There's data yeah. analysts. There's product managers that that's their job to like, you know, make sure this functions correctly. So, uh, yeah, never, always, always question, always go back and reason why something is why it is. Uh, sometimes it's silly, but. Yeah. There's still a reason, usually. Well, so we can, we can end with this last question. Um, as the role and function of design starts to evolve, what are some ideas or methodologies or other roles that you think will emerge over the next five years? I think about this a lot because uh, at times I get disappointed by the tools that we're given. Yeah. I mean, essentially most of it is Photoshop. Uh, mm. uh, I personally never really was good at Photoshop. <laughs> uh, I see some trends now that are pushing the envelope more. Mm. Um, uh, and I think design is gonna, you know, a lot of people talk about chatbots. I'm still trying to figure out <laughs> what's actually good about it, but suddenly you have no interface. Mm. <laughs> Not really. Um, you have an experience. so. I think we're, you know, and this, this sounds kind of cookie cutter, but 
I think as designers, we're really creating experiences at the end of the day. Uh, the methods we use today are uh, either the phone screen, a table, a cup, right, like this allows me to uh, lift it up and, and, and be able to drink from it and not burn my fingers, by the way. Um, but, you know, that is something that continuously evolves. Right now, we're really, it's phone-centric. I think it's going to go beyond that. You already see it with VR. Yeah. It's amazing for games, by the way. I love it, love it, love it. It's, it's great. But, you know, uh, and chatbots and everything is shifting around us. And we'll have some more good years with, with the things in our pocket because uh, they're pretty amazing. Um, but I think it's how do, we, how do we keep up with that and what are some of the things that change? Because uh, speaking of science fiction, you know, uh, I'm sure some folks have read Ready Player One. I mean, that's, you're just in a suit. You're just in a world that is not real anymore. It's just, I mean, it probably feels real. Uh, and that's where VR is going to go at some point. But what does that mean? But also, you're gonna, I think we're going to see a reaction the opposite way. It's like, kill all technology. I'm done with it. I'm going to go on a hike somewhere. Uh, I don't know where it's going to go, but I know that right now we're super focused on that phone screen. Yeah. Everything you see is about that phone screen. Yeah. Um, and I think that's going to shift. So I think designers, uh, I mean, it's not like today you need suddenly to think about everything outside because then, you know, uh, you're going to come back to the office and you're going to, like, do all sorts of crazy things and then yeah. they're asking what's next week. Uh, yeah. But, you know, iPhone is 10 years today. Yeah. Didn't have it before that. It's kind of insane, right? Yeah. And um, I think in another 10 years we'll, well, we'll be all old. I'll be really old. But we'll probably sit here and have a different type of, interaction with technology uh, but that's what's so exciting right like, yeah. like uh, roles are redefined I mean you know if you think about autonomous vehicles uh, you you remove the driver you remove a big part of the customer experience so what does that mean like is, it, is the car gonna talk to you it's kind of weird right like this robot talking to you yeah uh, who knows who knows but uh, that's that's a future that that will be very interesting, uh, and that's where uh, I really like to think of it experiences in general. So, as the interface attrition's, the experience will continue to be king. Is absolutely yeah. I think that never changed. There are some wow. You know, you can't really replace a good dinner. By the way, that's also an experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hope so. You can't I, take I, the food out of the dinner. <laughs> no, I, I, we've, we've tried, trust yeah. me, <laughs> and they're still trying, but it's, it's about experiences. I, I truly believe that, and, and people are willing to, uh, uh, to do interesting things and go long ways to have great experiences. Wow. Well, thank you thank so you. much. Thank yeah. you, Didier. Thank you. Hey, you made it to the end. Congratulations. Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that, that we covered with our guests, go on YouTube, go on Twitter. You can tweet us. You can leave us a comment. We'll get back to you. We'll help you as much as possible. At High Res Podcast. That's the, the screen name or the handle for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook. Find us. Talk to us. We want to converse with you. Uh, we're not going to leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for 
over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel. They're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've got to check out the team at Searle Video. It's searlevideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.